Welcome, one and all, to the Dire Ed Podcast, where we talk about the truly dire state of higher ed. I'm your host, Professor Andrew R. Timming, and I don't know much, but I know something is wrong with the modern university, and I want to understand what's going on and what we can do about it. Thanks for joining the conversation, and be sure to visit us at direed.com. That's D-I-R-E hyphen E-D dot com. All right, let's do this. Okay, so today I have the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Professor Michael Johns. Dr. Michael Johns is an associate professor of political science at Laurentian University. He's also held positions of the Vice Dean of Arts, Chair of the Department of Political Science, Acting Chair of the Department of Marketing and Management at Laurentian, and Honorary Visiting Research Fellow at Cardiff University in the UK. He received his PhD from the University of Maryland and holds a Master's Degree in Arts and Government and Politics from Maryland and a Master's Degree of Science from the London School of Economics in Comparative Politics. Dr. Johns teaches courses in international relations, comparative politics, European and American politics, as well as federalism and electoral systems. His research focuses on the role the European Union plays in the promotion and protection of minority and migrant rights. Dr. Johns was an instructor for the Ontario Citizens Assembly on electoral reform in the 2019 and in 2019 completed his second deployment to the Ukraine to monitor the parliamentary election in the contested Donkst region as part of the Canadian Civil Civilian Reserve. Uh, welcome, Michael. How are you? I am okay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, well, let's just jump right into this. Um, what the hell is going on at Laurentian? Yes, uh, unfortunately, uh, we have gone through a, a period of um, pretty traumatic news in the last little while that uh, we uh, started negotiating a, a new collective agreement uh, between uh, the, the union of uh, the faculty. Uh, it, our collective agreement had expired in uh, 2020. And uh, we had started negotiations with our university and our administration. Those uh, negotiations sort of broke off in around October. And um, around that time, the union had kept asking the administration to provide them with an update on the status of the, um, the, the economic stability of the university. And it wasn't really coming. And uh, unfortunately, eventually we, uh, as a union had threatened to, to bring this to the, the labor board as saying that the, the university was bargaining in bad faith. And at the end of January, the, the university had said that they would provide this information. And um, at the very end of January, they provided some of it. And then on February 1st, we received uh, an announcement that the university was insolvent and that it was seeking protections from its creditors and that it was going to use something in, in Canada called the CCAA, which is the Companies Creditors Arrangements, Arrangements Act, which had never been used uh, for a, uh, a public university or 
pretty much any real uh, publicly funded institution. It's, it's, as the name indicates, it's for companies. And uh, that all of this needed to be done by the end of April, that uh, the, the, uh, pre the presentation of a new collective agreement, a, a remanagement of what the faculty would look like in programming, and as well as a, a relationship with the federated universities that were a part of Laurentian University. Um, and then we received a note uh, on this Monday that uh, I was, uh, that the previous week our Senate had been presented with a list of programs that was going to be closed. And on Monday morning, this Monday, I guess the 12th, I received an email telling me that I had a mandatory meeting in the morning at which point I was informed that I, uh, my, my position was going to be terminated. Uh, my, my tenured uh, position had been terminated and that my last day was going to be May 15th. And uh, the entire political science department had been uh, terminated in this one meeting. And uh, we were part of a larger group of programs that got cut. And at the end, by the time it was all done, I believe it was 69 programs that was uh, eventually cut and over uh, 100 professors would be leaving the university. Who, who uh, held that meeting with you? Was it face-to-face -face or was it online? It was, in, it was a Zoom meeting um, because of the, the COVID uh, restrictions and it was a group COVID, uh, sorry, a group Zoom meeting. Uh, so we were, uh, there was a member of the administration who spoke briefly and then a uh, member of uh, the HR department who spoke briefly, then they left the Zoom meeting. And uh, we were uh, handed over to a, a person who was from a uh, career transitioning company that uh, was going to work with us over the next couple of months um, to provide some services. And then that was really it. Um, we didn't really have an enormous amount of time to, to, to address any questions. And then uh, since then, since Monday, this has been a sort of a, a week of, of meetings to try to figure out how we, how we move forward and how we try to, to wrap up our careers at Laurentian in a, in a very short period of time that uh, faculty who are teaching this semester, such as myself, our, our last day is, is May 15th, but uh, faculty who are on sabbatical uh, or do, who do not have courses this semester, uh, their last day is April 30th. So uh, it is a very, very fast process. Do you feel that the university has handled the situation with sympathy and compassion? It's certainly not how I have felt. Um, that uh, this is a, an institution that I have worked at for 17 years. Um, I, as, as you said in my intro, I have been chair of my department. I was vice dean. Um, I helped the university when they weren't, weren't able to, to have a chair in the marketing and management department. And I stepped in there for a few months that I had given a long time to Laurentian and uh, to be let go uh, in, the, in the way that I was, that, that, isn't, that didn't feel right. That isn't uh, a satisfactory way to, to end. And uh, that I'm, I'm certainly, I don't think alone in, in feeling that way. At, uh, on campus that you know, there's probably not a great way to, to let a large number of people go. Uh, there's, it's probably hard within a COVID environment, but this didn't seem like it was the best way you could do it. 
Let's talk a bit about the underlying causes of the financial situation. Could this be tied directly to COVID and the, the effects of the travel ban? I'm not sure. Like in Australia, the universities have suffered pretty significantly financially as a result of the fact that we can't get international students onto our campuses again. Is it a similar situation with, with Canada and Laurentian? For Canada, it is certainly the case that the universities have really suffered and uh, the governments across the, the country, the various provincial governments who are responsible for uh, education have had to try to keep, um, to, to reimburse some of these universities because they have suffered enormous losses. In, in Laurentian's case, it seems to have been a much longer pronounced problem that um, as we are beginning to sort of understand as we get more access to the information that the university suffered from um, some, I think some poor decision-making, um, some priorities that may not have made some sense in the long-term. Um, the, um, the uh, we had some problems earlier, we had some bad luck. The, uh, we had a large number of students, uh, international students, that uh, ended up leaving uh, Canada because of a disagreement with uh, from their home country to uh, with the Canadian government. So that didn't help. Um, but these problems predated COVID. But when COVID hit, the, the university that seems to have been teetering on um, on real financial uh, knife edge fell over on the other side. Uh, but certainly the problems predate COVID. But COVID probably was the thing that that ended up leading us into this this process right now. So your particular position uh, is a tenured position, and I think a lot of, uh, especially, PhD students that listen to my podcast have this vision in their mind that a tenured position means a job for life. So on what basis is that? Is that um, conception wrong? And on what basis can a university actually legitimately take steps to discontinue a tenured position? So it is, I think, the in the most basic understanding that, yeah, tenure is a job for life. And that's how certainly uh, when I was a PhD student, that was the goal. You get the, the tenure track position, you're off the sessional track. Um, it becomes very difficult for you to to be removed, there's always ways to, to remove a tenured professor if they have done things that, that warrant removal, but it is certainly very difficult. This is a, a bit of a unique case because uh, we had asked our employer, we had asked the university um, a few years ago and then again this year that if the university was in such dire conditions that um, we had aspects of our collective agreement that had language in how you do lay off professors. And there was a very uh, strict process that if you were going to go down that road, then you had to open up the books of the university. A committee had to be struck. They had to look for savings in, in other ways. And then only then, if uh, there was still the need to, to lay off professors, then there was a, uh, a process in which to do that. Uh, based around seniority. And uh, unfortunately, in my case, it was um, some cruel irony in that in our collective agreement, the language was written that if you had to go down this road of um, 
financial exigency and a committee was struck and you had to end up did have to close programs or you did have to lay off professors one of the conditions within our collective agreement was that if your age plus the number of years you had tenure uh, was over 55 then you were exempt from this process and um, I got to my my factor of 55 in November of 2020. Um, so I, I thought even then that I was probably safe. But when you go down the CCAA process in Canada, um, again, this is not a process that is supposed to be used um, for things that aren't companies. And what that does, when as soon as you go through the CCA process, it uh, suspends aspects of the collective agreement. And it allowed uh, the university to, during this period when it's under CCAA protection, it allowed them uh, to close programs and to terminate tenured positions, regardless of um, seniority or anything else. There was no committees uh, struck in the way that the collective agreement had, had called for it. It was uh, basically a decision made by a small number of, of people um, and then was done in an in-camera meeting of our university senate. And then I was only officially informed that my position was being terminated um, on the morning that, that that meeting took place. So this is, I think, where one of the real concerns within higher education, well beyond what is happening at Laurentian, is that there are mechanisms that can be used that can under um, or can override the protections that tenure is supposed to provide and at times override the protections of, the, of a collective agreement. And if this can happen at Laurentian University, it can happen at any university uh, in Canada. And if it can happen at any university in Canada, we're already seeing it happen in the United States. Uh, I think we're starting to see in the United Kingdom, it's, it's going to continue around the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you pointed out, I think um, even with tenured professors at universities that are not in financial distress, uh, there are always ways of of um, sort of forcing such individuals into uh, quote unquote voluntary resignations. I remember as an undergraduate, <clears throat> I had a professor who was, for whatever reason, she, she got tenure and and. Um, then just kind of dropped off the map and, you know, stopped publishing and stopped putting any effort at all into her teaching and, you know, kind of slept all day. And uh, they ended up basically um, forcing her to resignation by scheduling all 8 a.m. classes <laughs> for her. And she wasn't able to wake up for them. And that was, but like you said, there was a, a mandatory process that they had to go through to do it. Whereas it sounds like this because of these special provisions, this would you call the CCAA, they mm -hmm. were able to circumvent those processes. But I guess my, my next question is, since you mentioned that the, these special provisions weren't designed for public sector organizations, that they were designed for private sector companies that, that had you know, entered into financial difficulty, is there any scope for actually challenging the university's um, ability to draw on these provisions like is this I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is is this etched in stone or is there still something that can be done at this stage to alter the university's course of action it seems very unlikely the uh, the fact that Laurentian went through the CCAA 
process. Um, I was able to do that because of a loophole that was opened uh, a few years ago that uh, we had a, um, I'm not entirely familiar with the, the case, but uh, it involved um, the Red Cross in Canada that they had a, a scandal involving um, a blood tainting issue and they needed to restructure the Red Cross. And so they, they changed some of the rules of the CCAA that would allow a nonprofit organization to go through it. Uh, and it was basically designed for, they, they opened this up for one case, one emergency, and then they never closed the loophole. And so no one else had thought to, to bring a public institution through this process because it's incredibly damaging beyond uh, the, the wreckage of what is left of things like the Faculty of Arts at, uh, at Laurentian. Um, we lost an enormous number of programs in the Faculty of Arts beyond political science, but we also lost uh, the physics department. We lost the math department. Um, those sorts of things make it very difficult to recruit. It's gonna be very hard to re uh, rebuild trust in the community. So it's a really dangerous process. So it's understandable not a lot of uh, other uh, universities have gone down this road, but in terms of our program and, and most of the others, it seems very unlikely that this is going to be reversed. Uh, the, the provincial government, again, who is in charge of, of funding, has said that uh, we need to go through this process before it even considers any sort of bailout of the university or anything. There are some programs that possibly might, um, they're, they're, there's more hope there, I guess. Uh, for example, the university, um, Laurentian University, I guess one of the other things about Laurentian, which is, is somewhat unique, is Laurentian is a bilingual university. It is um, one of only two bilingual universities in Ontario, uh, both English and French. And Laurentian has a tricultural mandate. Uh, it, it, it's in uh, the city of Sudbury, Ontario, which is about uh, 400 kilometers north of Toronto in, the, in north, northeastern Ontario. Um, we have a, a very uh, large indigenous population and a very strong um, presence on campus of, of the indigenous population and indigenous learning and um, have said that we are uh, one of the sort of leading institutions and in involving in truth and reconciliation. So that is all to say that uh, one of the programs that was cut was uh, the bilingual program in uh, midwifery. And uh, it was a very unique program that didn't receive, that receives its funding seemingly directly from the provincial government. So that is the sort of program that they might be able to, to resurrect uh, on campus or somewhere else because it's, it's somewhat uh, independent of, of the university. There's a lawsuit between the, um, or I guess a, a request for a stay. The other part of that makes this a unique aspect the university is somewhat unique is that um, the university was a federated university that it has three other universities on campus that are all uh, religiously based and they provide a lot of the programming for the faculty of arts those relationships have been severed as part of the cca process well one of the college one of the universities that is dependent on working with laurentian is now um, engaged in legal action against Laurentian University. And so we don't know what will happen there. So there might be some things on the edges that might be um, fixed, 
But in terms of the vast majority of the over 100 professors who will be leaving the university and the 69 programs that were cut, the vast, vast majority of them are, are gone at this point. As you were talking, I, I had a look through the list of discontinued programs. They have the list uh, in terms of the English language programs and the, the French language programs. And just looking through, I can see what you might consider to be the usual suspects uh, in a sort of redundancy program. And by that, I mean primarily like the arts and the humanities. So you see like, um, let's see, you know, Italian is being cut, uh, workplace and labor studies that would be sort of aligned with my own personal interests that would be cut. These are programs that are almost always on the chopping. Th these are programs that are on the chopping block during, during good times. Uh, music, uh, philosophies being cut, Spanish is being cut. I was a Spanish major as an undergraduate, so that would have been quite significant for me, uh, modern languages. But as you also said, there are a few unusual suspects on this list. I would say entrepreneurship would be one, actuarial science. So these are programs that would typically be in a, a business school. As you said, mathematics and physics uh, are on this list. And um, physics not only is having their undergraduate program cut, but also their postgraduate, their master's degree, I see has been cut as well. And so I guess this, this makes me think, um, you know, what was the process that the university went through to pick courses? Because let's, let's be, you know, frank about this, the, you know, a, a university in financial distress, if it's approaching insolvency, it, it, it does have to make difficult decisions. Like that's the reality of the situation. But did they just sit there and throw a dart at a board and wherever the dart landed, that was the program they would cut? Because it seems to me cutting a program in you know, biomedical physics or, um, you know, physics or mathematics seems a bit short-sighted given the fact that, you know, STEM is all the rage right now. So do, do you know, I mean, I, I guess it's an informational problem. Do you know exactly what went on for them to reach the decision to target these particular programs? I don't. And I think that's part of, of the frustration that, um, the it it would appear that it was done in a in a pretty clinical cost benefit analysis way, um, without possibly thinking through the ramifications of, of some of these decisions. That uh, you know, one of the other things that uh, you would have seen on this list is that uh, we again we are a university in in northern Ontario um, in a mining community. Uh, this is the, the historical nature of, of Sudbury, Ontario. It's uh, one of the largest nickel producing um, mines in, in the world. And uh, it had a, a long history of being seen as um, you know, being very environmentally backwards. Uh, quite famously, they, they practiced part of the moon landing apparently in Sudbury. Uh, and it's now been greenified a lot due to uh, programs on campus on, in ecology and the School of the Environment, and all of those were cut. Um, and so 
we never did get a really good explanation other than this is where we could save money. And without thinking about the ramifications of what these programs mean for other programs, uh, what these programs mean for the, the community that it serves, um, in the case of midwifery, possibly that the, uh, the, the limits in this, the size of, of the course, that's uh, it's a restricted program. It's one of the hardest ones to get into in the, in, in the entire university. We don't know that. And uh, because this was done, the decision-making was done in a Senate meeting that was in camera. Hmm. And so we, we were not given that information. It may come out at some point, but as of today, I don't, I can't tell you why exactly they cut any of those programs and then my own program of political science, other than what they have said publicly throughout this process, which is we had too many professors teaching too many courses to too few students was the, the, uh, the, the phrase that we heard too many times. And, um, that is uh, that is the best I can guess, but we were as as I'm not a senator, which means I don't know what uh, what the thought process was for any of these programs, and including the ones that you know go beyond what would be sort of the traditional threatened programs. Hmm. We've talked uh, quite a bit about some of the structural issues here, um, but in the last five minutes or so, I wonder if we could just talk about how you are doing personally. How have you coped uh, with the news and um, if, if you could share with us what your next steps might be. Sure, it's been a very rough week. Um, you, we had known for a while that this was possible because as soon as we went into this process, we knew that the reason you would go through this process, the only reason that you would go through this process would be to get, um, to, to sort of clear cut some of your tenured faculty. So it was always in the realm of possibility. But when it happens, um, when you actually are informed that your, your services are no longer needed for no fault of your own, you know, you can do everything right. Um, you can be a good employee for 17 years. You can take on administrative roles. You can publish books. You can, you know, have really good uh, evaluations from your students and it doesn't matter. And I think there's a bit of a shock that takes place and there's a grieving process. And I, to be honest, I think I'm still in the middle of that. Um, I sort of wake up and I'm like, that really happened. I cannot believe that there's a possibility that this is the end of my academic career. The thing that I have been training for um, you know, since I was 18 and went away to, to university and started studying political science. Um, and then the 17 years I was at Laurentian. So in terms of what I do next, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm 46. Um, I've had one job my, my life, in my life. Um, I was very good at it, but um, it still is only one job. We all know what the academic job market is like. The, so the possibilities of me finding another academic job, another teaching job are... Um, are, are pretty poor. So it's been, you know, if it was February 1st that the, this process started and I was let go, I think April 13th or April 12th that I had 
really only 60 some odd days to, to think about this. And so now I have to, I have to actually spend some time thinking about what I want to do and what my skill set is. There, there is some opportunities within academia, um, either um, in some forms of administration. Uh, we have a, a college system in, in Ontario uh, that they're doing some really innovative work uh, with the communities that I find interesting. Um, there's, I guess, governmental jobs. There might be some things in the private sector, but this was never you know, the idea that you would leave with such a, you know, a very quick turnaround. And then of course, because the university is in insolvency, we were not granted severance. So it's not even like I have time to, to figure this out. So it's, uh, it is going to take a little bit of time to fully process. It's going to take some time to get over the shock, the anger. Um, at the same time, I'm saying goodbye to colleagues who I've worked with for, for over a decade. Um, I have to clear out my office during COVID. <laughs> I got to find out when I'm allowed on campus. So I can, I haven't been in my office since March, 2020. So, uh, I, I need to I need to do all that, and then I need to to process and, and think about next steps. And uh, it's probably you know if there was a cautionary tale here, it's that even if you are in a tenured position, I think it is always a good idea to to spend some time thinking about okay, if it goes away, what do I want to do? What am I good at? What do my skills translate at? Are there other things out there that I want to to look at? Uh, because if it comes, then you need to be ready, and certainly. I had done a little bit of that work beforehand, but not enough to, to sort of really just step out of this and into something else. And so it's going to be um, a little um, sort of out without an over uh, a cliff without a net right now. And uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to figure that out. Mm. What, what's your last day of work at, at Laurentian? May 15th. May 15th. That's like literally, that's like right around the corner. It's like a month away. A month away. Yes. So do you, is, is academia your, your preference? Is that your first choice and you'll settle for something else or, you know, is it possible you might even have felt a bit betrayed by academia and maybe even be quite enthusiastic and looking at different opportunities at this stage? I think, you know, after a, a couple more days of getting over this um, and mourning what has happened, um, I'm hoping that there is an excitement for me that now there are a bunch of opportunities. There is academia. I know I can do that. Uh-huh. I've done it. I could do it again. I could step into another university tomorrow. I could you know, be a part of the, the senior leadership of a, of a department. I know I can do that. Partly there's a bit of me that is like, okay, so what else can I do? Um, what else can my skill set do? And what are the things that I liked most about my job? And can they be applied elsewhere? And that is somewhat exciting. And I don't, so I don't think it's going to be a academia or second choice. I think there might be the opportunity to, to really take a look and see what it is that I like, what I'm good at, and then try to, to match that up. And it may end up being that it is academia, but there may be other things out there. I just have never had to think about that. And as of Monday, I need to start thinking about that. Mm. Just as the last question here, <clears throat> given the fact that, uh, you know, your university isn't the only university going through redundancies 
at this stage and it won't be the only one in 2021. What advice would you give people who are going through what you're going through right now? Uh, it's okay to be mad. It's okay to be really sad. It's okay to mourn. Um, one of the best things that has come out of this, people want to help. Um, and I'm trying not to get emotional here because that has been the thing that has amazed me this week. I, I put out a tweet basically telling people that I've, I'm let, I've been let go. Uh, it got like 5,000 likes. I went nuts. It's sort of sad that the one time I ever went viral was to tell people I got uh, terminated, but um, people I don't know have reached out to me and said, Hey, there's jobs in this area. Have you thought about this? Um, the, the secretary from when I was an undergrad in my department contacted me and told me that things will be okay. My kindergarten teacher reached out to me. Um, it's, it's okay to lean into your friends, um, and your family and, you know, accept that this isn't great. It sucks. But if you surround yourself with, with good people, they will, they will help you and they'll hold you up when you don't really feel like being held up. And that, that has been remarkably rewarding and uh, has it, re, you know, after a year of being in COVID and being isolated, you know, my wife and I and our dogs in our house um, to, to have people reach out and to want to help people I know and people I don't. Um, you know, a friend of mine offered to, to pay for a career, a career counselor to, to speak with me. Like it is, there are good people who want to help when things go badly. And so when, when this, um, the, there's my, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, and it's basically says that um, what makes you a man to paraphrase it is what happens when the storm comes. And if you, you know, yell at the storm that uh, do your worst for I'll do mine. What I've learned is that you, you should do that. But when the storm comes, people want to help you and, and let them help you because it, uh, you're going to need it and it will, it will uh, reinstill some, some belief in the, in the good of people when you've had some real bad happen to you. What a lovely way to end the podcast. I, I guess just in conclusion, I want to say that I'm deeply sorry for, for what you're going through and um, just incredibly grateful that you can sit down and share your experiences um, with us in the podcast, because I do believe that there are any number of people that could benefit from, from what you've talked about. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for your time. <clears throat> and yeah. um, let's, uh, let's keep in touch. I'd like that.